Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Wednesday, February 17th, 2010. Happy Chinese New Year. It's now the Year of the Tiger. And once again, as always, I'm Paul Fox, and joining me is my co-host and good friend, Mr. Kevin Ma. Kevin, gong hei fa choi. Gong hei fa choi, Paul. Gong hei fa choi, everybody. So we are back, and we've got a special episode this week. We're going to be talking particularly about uh, Chinese New Year films. Um, so we're not going to cover any West Screen films this week. We'll save that for our next episode. Um, but before we start off, we got a couple news things that we do want to talk about. First and foremost, um, if you're in Hong Kong at the moment, uh, if you're fortunate enough to be here, you'll probably see quite a few uh, military guys lining up at the ATMs on Hong Kong Island side. Um, and from what I've read in the news, this is a bunch of sailors coming in from the USS um, Nimitz Carrier Group who got special permission from the Chinese government to have shore leave here over the next four days. Uh, doubtful that any of them listen to the show, but if they do, I uh, just want to say a big shout out and hello to them and hope they have a very nice time and a safe time here in the fragrant harbor that is our home. Um, also, we want to make mention this week that... Um, Kozo over at the lovehongkongfilm.com uh, page is having another best of series. This time he's asking for people to send in their their top 10 picks for films of the 90s. Is that, is that correct, Kevin? Yes, uh, the best. I believe now he opened up for the best 20 films uh, of the 90s because uh, the other night we were at dinner and we started talking about how many films would qualify, where they would end up on the list. And it just wouldn't stopped for about 30 minutes we just kept naming films so Kozo decided to open it up so instead of 10 films now you can vote for the top 20 films of the 90s well I mean, I mean we both of us participated in his recent uh, listing which was um, the the last 10 years the post-millennium yes. films and somehow when I think about doing this for the 90s it's very daunting uh, simply mm -hmm. because there were so many more films made during the 90s and arguably uh, a lot more that were of better quality. And just thinking about going through the library and thinking about, you know, which films were which uh, coming from those years and, and what were what would be my top 10. It, it seems like it's going to be a really hard choice to make. Um, do you get that same sense at all or do you think this will be fairly easy for you? Oh, it's going to be very difficult for me because one, I missed out on a good portion of the 90s. Uh, and two, like you said, I, I can't go back and look at the library and see which films came out in the 90s because on Love HK Film, you could see yearly by year which films came out in the 2000s. But in 1990s, there were so many films produced that it's hard to find a comprehensive database for them. So it's really one of those film, one of those uh, lists where you just have to go by memory. I remember this film, I remember that film, and so on and so on. Yeah, it's very difficult. You can, um, you can, if you go to the Hong Kong Film Archive, you can get a PDF of uh, all of the Hong Kong films released, um, sort of, uh, you know, by their release date. So you could technically take that document and go through and sort of check off all of the films um, as they were released through the '90s, but Again, it this, that means like two thousand films. Yeah, there's I've... just so many, and I'm. I mean, I saw quite a few of them, but I. I there's nowhere. I mean, there's no way that I saw anywhere near, um, close to I'd say sixty percent of the films that were released during that time period. Um, you know, and and you've got a lot of different genres, and and you've got a lot of different 
actors that people will focus on. I mean, I was, you know, I would pretty much see anything that like Andy Lau was doing during that, during those, those years, but there were a lot of films that I miss and some of them, you know, you just don't want know if you can either find them on DVD these days. A lot of them are out of print and some of them you probably could find on DVD or maybe an older format like Laserdisc, but they'd be very expensive because they're considered collectible. So uh, it's going to be a challenge. So what I think will happen is that uh, Kozo might not have so much work to do because then you see a lot of clear favorites, you know, the John Woo films, the Stephen Chow films. There'll be a lot of really obvious picks that will come out instead of having so many different outliers, I think. Well, what about your Chinese New Year, Kevin? Uh, anything special uh, this year? We were, as my as my better half pointed out, that uh, we celebrated both uh, the first day of Chinese New Year and Valentine's Day on the same day. And she, she was telling me that it will not happen again for like another 38 years or something like this. <laughs> um, so did you have any extra special plans? Um, as those of uh, those people who follow my Twitter could see, I went to a one time Sin temple, uh, temple of New Year's Day, uh, New Year's morning to be pretty precise. Uh, got my yearly fortune. Um, not so good this year. Told me to be very cautious. Uh, night before I had dinner with my family and uh, Valentine's Day. Um, we had a, I think I had a Outback Steakhouse Valentine's Day dinner thing with my girlfriend, but nothing you know really special because she was sick and I was tired because I didn't get much sleep. So, yeah, so did you get, so that's, get, that's, that's get a lot of uh, red packets? Did you uh, happen to make uh, up your Valentine's Day expenditure at all? Uh, not many of my family are, at least not in my generation, none, no one is married, so I got no one, none from them, and I have a couple of uncles. But, yeah, I don't really have a big extended family here in Hong Kong, so I got a few red pockets, but um, I wouldn't say I, I came out, you know, like a bandit mm-hmm. or anything. Oh, you, Paul, I bet you, you came out. I'm, I bet you make it out like a bandit. No, no, you know, it's uh, I, I try to stay in. We stayed in all four days, basically. Uh, I tend not to like going out. Some, I have some friends who went out to the flower markets and things. And there's just, it's like a sea of people. And uh, the, you, you do that for the first year or so that you're here. And it's kind of neat. It's kind of an experience. But I'm not a crowd person. I don't like big crowds. I don't like having to rub shoulders when I'm walking down a, a big street. So uh, I prefer just to stay in. Uh, I spend, We spent Valentine's Day. We watched Zombieland. I finally got to see that on DVD, which was uh, an experience, not particularly romantic in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> but uh, it kept us, you know, busy, and we just basically spent time to, you know, time together and uh, family time for the China, traditional Chinese New Year dinner. So all that was good. Uh, in terms of red packets, uh, got a couple. Uh, it was nice to get a couple from work. Uh, probably be the last year I'm able to collect. Probably by next year I'll have to be giving them out rather than receiving. All right, um, but it's all in the it's all in the spirit of giving, as they say. So I'll have to look forward to that. So hit me up next year, Kevin. <laughs> Definitely. All right, so it's time to move on to our film reviews, and this year we're going to be talking about four of the big Chinese New Year films that have come out. Uh, This has been a particularly busy year for Chinese New Year films. I think in the past, 
three or four years, we've been lucky to get one or two releases uh, during the Chinese New Year period that were particularly themed for Chinese New Year. We, they typically release uh, new movies. Uh, sometimes they'll release Hollywood movies during this period. Uh, but this year we've been particularly fortunate in having uh, quite a few local films to go and see. And so last week we were very busy with pretty much a film a day uh, in terms of screenings. So, Kevin, what is the first film on our agenda for Chinese New Year? The first film we have on the list was my most feared one, actually. Uh, All's Well Ends Well 2, 2010. Uh, after the nightmare that was also Ends Well 2009. Uh, well, actually, did you enjoy that one, Paul? I remember someone enjoyed it. It was it was okay. Um, you know, uh, I as as I've mentioned before, I, I kind of like holiday films. I wanted to like that one. Uh, didn't really like it as much as I had hoped. It was not up to the standards of some of the older uh, New Year films under that title. I can say. Mm -hmm. So, with those expectations, uh, Raymond Wong and the original cast, including uh, Louis Ku, Sandra Un, and um, Ronald Chang, return for uh, also as well two two thousand ten. Now this time they've taken the setting back to um, a period piece, but as we as one might expect from like a Hong Kong uh new year film they would uh, the present and the past would match and there would be a lot of sight gags where uh things from contemporary uh Hong Kong would be back in this fictional nation called the uh flower nation uh Fa Guo I believe um anyway onto the story um Louis Ku stars as the king of this flower nation uh one who wants to be a Kung Fu fighter, uh, one who wants to be a superhero, except he's not really. Uh, his sister, played by a model Angela Baby, is um, being escorted back from uh, the central, this na nation central or whatever, um, by uh, Imperial bodyguard Ronald Chang. Um, and, but on the way back, they run into some bandits and they get lost. And as expected, um, Angela Baby loses her memory and gets picked up by Raymond Wong, a um, man who, who is also looking for his daughter who jumped in the lake uh, of some suicide because she didn't want to be in an arranged marriage. Now, that girl, uh, played by Lin Xiong, a.k.a. Aaron Kwok's girlfriend, uh, got picked up by um, Ronald Chang's gang and got brought back to the to the, to the palace. Now, Louis Ku hadn't seen his... Um, sister for about 10-15 years so he has no idea what she looks like and somehow mistakenly assumes that she is her sister his sister uh, so um, comedy ensues a lot of mistaken identity Sandra Ng shows up as um, as the sister of the man I'm sorry the aunt of the man that Lin Xiong was supposed to marry and uh, yeah, so a lot of uh, mistaken identities, a lot of crisscrossing. While Ronald Chen tries to find the, the princess, Louis Ku is, is trying to learn kung fu, and 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 things, and, and so their paths all come together in some kind of big martial arts competition. And then of course, there's the ending where everyone sings to the screen, wishing everyone a Chinese New Year. Now, um, I didn't laugh one time last year when also ends well 2009. So. My my standard for making this a better film would be if I laughed once, and I definitely laughed actually a few times uh, in this film. So it was film. beyond your expectations. It was beyond my expectations. Actually, it's it's kind of like a two hundred percent jump in quality. Uh, so there was a lot, of, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different uh, visual gags. So um, they actually product placement disguised as visual gags. So you would see things like uh, Circle K 
uh, or Milan Station, which is um, a secondhand bag uh, vendor here in Hong Kong, and they would show up in in Flower Nation, and people would laugh because oh, it's funny because it's contemporary things in the past. And you know, for most time, actually, they worked. They worked for me, uh, even though I know it's product placement. It worked. Um, Angela Baby actually was a really big surprise here. She has some comic timing, and and she actually did quite well um, here as the the as the princess with no memory. Um, Louis Koo was, of course, his his silly self, and uh, Ronald Chen was also quite surprising. He was really good as the um, the Imperial bodyguard. Um, and like I said, I actually laughed a few times, even though even though the really bad stuff, the really embarrassingly bad stuff was still there. Remember, Paul, I was sitting next to you, right? And the, the first time when Ronald Chen comes out, he starts singing, and I had both my hands covering my face and screaming, I wanted a refund. But uh, yeah, I, I actually, actually like that scene. Really? Yeah. It was so bad. It, it's really like this. this they, 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 I think Raymond automatically assumes that Mole Tao, anything that's irrelevant would be funny automatically but but he did but the but, but there's a thin line between Mole Tao and stupid and it crosses it way too many times i think in this in these two films um but nevertheless i mean I, there was actually some fun to be had and um the technical uh production value is still very shoddy they i think they shot in one studio uh even though herman yao has taken on uh uh taking the reins as uh, co-director um but i think that shoddiness kind of helped the film. I don't know. It, it, that kind of weakened production value is something you expect from a Lunar New Year comedy and then that's something that can be excused. Um, but the best, actually the most, the thing I appreciate the most here is that they shot the film in sync sound, which means, um, which means everything was live. Uh, everything was, um, the whole film is in Cantonese and actually people spoke Cantonese on set unlike uh, many Hong Kong films where dialogue got dubbed. I think uh, there was one, the- wasn't the... Um... The, the nephew of Sandra Um, who yes. was supposed to marry um, marry the girl who ends up posing as the princess, um, who was actually Raymond Wong's character's daughter. Um, he was a mainland, or was he a Taiwan actor? I think he was dubbed, wasn't he? Yes, he's, he's mainland. He's yeah. definitely dubbed. But um, but everybody else sounded great. And I, for me, sync yeah. sound is, is, is a must. I can't stand when they do post-production sound um, for native language. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that was definitely something I appreciated. Even um, actually the film we're about to talk about after this, um, 72 Tens of Prosperity, I think that almost that entire film was done, um, was dubbed post-production. So um, that just makes this film actually sound really good. <laughs> um, even though you hear the, 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 the bad audio quality at points, but um, it's obvious, it's the, the acting just comes off a lot more natural when the sound is recorded on set, I think. Mm. So, so the humor actually comes off a lot better here. But uh, actually, the, the joke about the uh, Mandarin guy, uh, yes, he was dubbed. I heard, I read by Xiu Fei, the really annoying uh, pop singer. Mm. Uh, he was dubbed by Xiu Fei. But what he does, what they do here is that they took the um, Mandarin grammar. Um, essentially, lines are all in Mandarin grammar, but he spoke, he spoke them in Cantonese. So it's Cantonese in Mandarin grammar. Mm. So that was kind of that was kind of amusing. So the so the mouth the mouth matched a little bit, but you could all you could of course tell it's not it's dubbed in post production. But it was uh, kind of um, amusing for about a scene, and it kept doing it, and it got annoying. But anyway, um, yeah, like uh, like we were talking about just now, like I said earlier, yeah, also ends well to 2010 exceeds your expectation. 
um not very good but still uh, i had a good time surprisingly yeah, it was fun i i can say that uh it's it was pretty standard fare for a new year's film um many times these films become sort of comedy of errors types of stories where somebody's lost their memory or somebody's pretending to be somebody they're not and but usually there's a there's a pairing off of people so all the couples will match up at the end and um, you know, they did this in the film last year. They did it this year. The product placement, I think, was funnier here because this was a period piece. They had mm. product placement last year's, but because last year's was taking place in sort of the modern era in China, it was very much in your face. I, I mean, I think it was the, what was it, uh, Happy Online or something? Yes. It was like the major sponsor of the film last year, and everything was about, you know, everywhere was banners for Happy Online, and it was very annoying. Here, because it was you know, sort of set in the past. And so you see the Circle K logo like carved out of wood on the side of this shop. You know, it's a bit humorous to see it in that context. And so I think it did work and it did bring a level of, you know, of funny to that, even though they're, you know, they're definitely getting sponsorship from the companies they were representing. Mm -hmm. um, there were there was some in contextual references to uh, Ip Man, which I'll talk a little bit mo more with regard to our next film and then our third film. Um, there was also some references to the Lehman Brothers. Now, Lehman Brothers was a, was a problem in the, in the States, obviously, but it was a bigger problem here because we had a lot of local people uh, investing in Lehman Brothers mini bonds. And so that was really a big news over here. A lot of people sort of lost their shirt. And so they, they, have, a, so they have a couple in-joke references to uh, the, the one character, Raymond Wong's character, having lost all of his, all, all of his funds he was apparently at one time very rich, and now one of the one of his motivations for marrying off his daughter to um, Sandra M's nephew is that he wants to sort of get some dowry money back, and in doing so, it, it, primarily because he's no longer rich. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was fun film. It was very accessible. I think there was some there was some in jokes, but a lot of it was very much sight gag humor. Um, I think that for me, the, the best role was Ronald Chang. Um, yeah. He's playing a, a character named uh, General Bing, I believe. He's sort of like the bodyguard of the princess, and he has, you know, they have developed a love relationship, and hopefully he will get, be able to, you know, convince the king to allow the two of them to marry, even though he's not a royal. And But he's got some of the best uh, fight choreography for the film. I mean, it's it's obviously a comedy film, so it's not really meant to be an action film. But he does very well in somewhat serious action-oriented roles. And I, I said this before a long time ago when we saw Fatal Contact, where it was a much more serious role and he was taking on a, a bit of a dramatic turn in terms of playing a, a martial artist. I would really love to see him get, you know, sort of a solid leading role where he wasn't doing his typical sort of, you know, supermodel comedy shtick or dragon-loaded comedy style, you know, that so many people associate with him and just let him be sort of in a serious leading man martial arts role. I think he'd do very well. Honestly, I think he's so typecast into his, his comedic role now that it's hard for him to do anything serious, I think. Even in Fatal Contact, I believe he was kind of the comic relief at points, right? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, but he, you know, he did, he, you know, he was a m much more serious character than he's given, than he's been given in, in typical films. 
Mm-hmm. So do you think he is able to pull off dramatic roles? I think, well, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to see him doing, you know, I wouldn't want to see him playing, for example, I would not want him doing like Louis Ku's character in um, Protégé. Or no, was it Protégé or what was the one where Louis Ku was the junkie? Oh, uh, Protégé. Another Louis- Lunar New Year <laughs> film, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to see him doing, doing a, a you know, a, a role like that. But I think when it comes to, to action, you know, to playing sort of a, like a serious action hero, I think he could pull it off. All right. Well, our next Chinese New Year film is Seventy Two Tenants of Prosperity, and this is a film uh, directed by Eric Zhang, which has a huge cast of approximately seventy two big stars, or somewhat big stars, and then some TVB stars. Um, And this is based slightly on the original uh, House of 72 Tenants, which is the classic Shaw Brothers film from uh, the 1970s. As Because it's sort of paying homage to this classic film, the story itself starts off uh, in a er a much earlier period um, with some characters who are, um, you know, being... being, uh, bullied by their landlord and landlady and they use their wits to sort of you know outsmart them and 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 get them arrested and then it jumps to present day where the characters are older and these the two characters who are sort of youths at the time have their relationship has fallen apart and they've become enemy enemies and they basically work on this one street in the Mongkok area i guess it was was it Mongkok or it's Cyan Choi Street. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, staged version of Cyan Choi Street. Um, it, it's staged, but it, it's supposed to represent sort of a this real area where people go for shopping for all kinds of stuff, electronics and phones and things. And the two main characters, uh, played by Eric Zhang and Jackie Chung, uh, have a shop directly across from each other. And they're basically selling the same wares and competing with each other and always trying to come up with tricks and ploys to outdo each other. And then... Um, the two of them had a friend who was a girl when they were younger, um, who was, um, I think it was, what is it? Fala Chen played the younger version. I, I couldn't recognize her actually. I think it was Fala Chen. Um, but in the older version, it's played by uh, Anita Yun and she has ended up marrying, uh, Eric Zhang, uh, much to the dismay of, uh, Jackie Chung, who was also in love with her when they were a youth. So this is another reason for their split as it were. Um, both and both of them have kids with um, uh, let's see Eric Zhang's children were oh, I get so confused was it Steffi and no I think Steffi's Steffi's father no yeah, yeah, yeah. Steffi's father is Jackie Chung Steffi's father was and, Jackie Chung and then yes, so Linda and... Chung was Eric Zhang's daughter Yes, and, and then, Bosco would be. Uh, and Bosco, Bosco would... was Eric Eric's son's son, and then Wang Chou Lam was Jackie Chung's son. So they each had a son yes. and a daughter. Makes for a very good pairing. Again, it's very traditional where everybody ends up with somebody, in kind of an ideal. Um, and so basically, it's about this rivalry, uh, how the two of them work out their relationship. There's a subplot going on where um, someone wants to buy up all the shops. And there's uh, the additional subplot going on of uh, somebody throwing acid in the streets, which is a, a real case from real headlines here in Hong Kong. Um, so there's there's a motivation going on. And 
then it's basically just a bunch of different vignettes where very famous people from movies and from television pop on in little cameos here and there. And it becomes sort of a race to try and recognize uh, as many stars, you know, local stars as you can in, in various places. And, and It's the founding of the Republic of TVB. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is exactly what they did in the old House of 72 Tenants 2 um, back in the 70s. It was, you know, basically every other scene, somebody famous from that time period was popping up. They do pay some nice homages. For example, um, Lydia Shum, who was a, a primary character in the original, her daughter, um, Joyce Cheng, uh, she has a role here during the earlier period when which she's basically portraying a character very similar to that which her mother portrayed. So it's got some nice moments like that. Um, the one thing that I found that it was missing that I would have, would have liked to have seen is that in the original House of 72 Tenants, anytime an actor pops up on the screen for the first time in a cameo, uh, there's like a title card that you know has the actor's name. I was kind of hoping they'd do that here, but they didn't. Um, maybe they feel that that's sort of an old school way of doing things and that this is a modern film so that they didn't want to do that. Uh, but I, I kind of missed that personally. Um, yeah, I could appreciate it because there's so many people popping in and out that it would be nice to be able to label who is who. Yeah, and a lot of them, I mean, of the 72, I think I could recognize about 70%, maybe 65% of them. There were a bunch of like, TVB people who I didn't really recognize um, at first sight, um, a bunch of smaller character actors who I didn't recognize. Um, this film, again, like the last film we just talked about, um, is also riffing on Donnie Yen's uh, Ip Man, which if you count this with the next film we're going to talk about, 14 Blades, means that Donnie is the most active or popular person in all of the Chinese New Year films. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'll let Kevin comment <laughs> on that in just a moment. Um, but the film, one of the, one of the key trends that we see in the film is that there's a rich mainlander who kind of comes in and buys up all the shops and he wants to reorganize everything. And he's fortunately very generous. And so, you, you know, he's, he's, he's going to give, let everybody work rent free for a year or something. And so they're all very happy. But, um, again, sort of hinting to the displays of economic power that the mainland now has over Hong Kong, which was something that was quite the reverse when the original House of 72 Tenants was playing. Um, it, was, it was very much in the reverse and just goes to show how things can change in, in just a few short years. Um, and the, the one big surprise for me was that in one very small scene, we have the, the kid from the film Murderer pop up. It just kind of sort of <laughs> stunned everybody. Um, and, I, you know, there was, there was an audible, like, sort of gasp and a, and a whoop from everybody in our little group when they saw, when they saw him. <laughs> Um, I think, I think we weren't, none of us were expecting to ever see that kid in a movie again. And then there he was. So Kevin, you know, I've talked quite a bit. What were your impressions of, um, 72 Tenants of Prosperity? So we watched, uh, both films in one night, uh, also on well first and then, uh, 72 Tenants second. Um, I enjoyed this one more, actually. I know that most of the group, I think, enjoyed, uh, also on well more, but I enjoyed 72 Tenants more just... Just simply because of the star spotting. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you on that. And primarily for me, it, I enjoyed it more because of Jackie Chung. Yes. Um, it, I'm very happy to see him doing films again. Although in our discussion afterwards, um, 
a few people were letting me know that one of the reasons we're seeing quite a few Jackie Chung, I think he's got like three films coming out in within these couple months, is that, you know, he apparently lost quite a bit in the Lehman Brothers scandal. And so he needs to make some bank back. Um, yeah. So, but I, you know, as, as bad news as that was for him, I am glad to see him doing films again, because as I've mentioned, I really like him as an actor, so... Yeah, it was he was really good in this um silly and even makes fun of himself as a pop star and one. That was actually my second favorite gag after the uh murderer kid. Yeah, I, I was talking to one of my colleagues today who went and saw it and he said that th- there's a scene where Jackie Chung is sort of making fun of his own pop star status and then Wong Cho Lam actually does a, a very very good impression. I mean, I I I'm assuming that was really him doing it and it wasn't sort of a redub. And if that was really him, I mean, he had him sort of spot on in that impression. And I was like, wow, that's really good. And I re- they said, my colleague said that was his favorite scene. He felt that was the funniest. And that was the most memorable memorable scene for, for me as well. Well, first, uh, uh, that was actually, I think, the voice. If you talk about the voice, um, you saw Jackie Chern walked off frame. So that was, I think that was him singing off frame. So you while, don't think uh, Wong Cho Lam was actually singing that? Oh, of course not. He's a good sing. He's actually a good, quite a good singer. If you, uh, we were talking about the the TVB series he was he's in right yeah. now. He's actually an okay singer, but uh, no, that was definitely not him doing uh, uh Jackie Chan. Oh, disappointed. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, um, Jackie Chan was uh very welcome back. Uh, he, he's also very good in Hot Summer Days, which we will talk about next week. Um. But uh, Wong Chun Lam actually here is not as not as annoying as he's been before. Even though he is, he does sort of mug, do a lot of mugging here as well. Um, and then um, who else? Eric Zhang is okay. Eric Zhang plays Eric Zhang. Uh, and Nina Yuan uh, again, really welcome presence back on the screen. Even though she doesn't do much here, even though she has one of, another really 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 funny scene uh, involving um, using uh, stuff in a wonton noodle shop as makeup. That was really good. Yeah, that was a good scene. Yeah, and um, yeah, the the film here is not it's not a very good film, I would say. I mean, three directors and tons of people writing the story. I mean, it's it's actually it's it's, a, it's the definition of filmmaking by committee. But um, the, I I really like the fact that it feels really local. There's a lot of uh Hong Kong gags that really you have to be in Hong Kong to really understand, or you have to live in Hong Kong to really understand, like the acid thing and the um. And the Jackie Chan uh, reference and a murderer reference, like these things, you have to really live in Hong Kong, be with what what's going on in Hong Kong to really understand everything. I really appreciated that. That finally, there's a Lunar New Year movie that feels like it's made for Hong Kong. Yeah, but unfortunately, I think that's one of the problems with this film is that it's it's so very local that if you were somebody new to sort of Hong Kong films or or Asian films and you were sitting down to watch this that it may not be very accessible because you'd see all these, you know, sort of vignettes passing by and you wouldn't really understand that this little scene here, while it seems very extemporaneous and doesn't really seem to have a connection to the main storyline, is just a little platform for this guy, you know, to make an appearance and and to be funny for a moment. And even though it doesn't really have anything to do with the main story, that's the purpose of this is to let this this particular star of these 72 stars have a moment and yeah it's it's very much if you don't recognize a lot of these people um or you don't get some of the context behind what's being presented it may not be as accessible and i don't think it's it's going to have staying power 
I mean, I think this will be a film that, you know, you'll obviously see running on local cable and, and, and network stations, you know, in Chinese New Year's to come. But I, I don't think it will be up there being compared with the original House of 72 Tenants. No, I definitely now. don't think. Yeah, I definitely don't think it'll be a classic, but um, I think it is very enjoyable, and I think it will have enough word of mouth to be the most successful one during this year. But uh, yeah, until I think uh, this, this is definitely not a classic. It's it's fun, it's good, and it really much follows the traditional Lunar comedy, which actually they're all about. You know, made for a lot of local gags and and sort of nonsense and not a very fluid story. They're all about that. So I was perfectly fine with that, actually. But yeah, you're right. Just like split second murders last year, there's a lot of local humor here that is that will make it very accessible for for um, uh, people outside of Hong Kong, and that's that's not really a problem for me though. Our third film for the Chinese New Year season is 14 Blades. And I haven't seen this film yet. I haven't had an opportunity to go out and uh, check it out. I was, I had to, I had to make a decision and I went to see The uh, Lightning Thief instead. And we'll talk about that film a little bit next week. But Kevin, you've seen it and you've talked about it. And why don't you give us the lowdown on your thoughts for the new Donnie Yen film, 14 Blades? So 14 Blades is the latest... Um... Uh, art film by director Daniel Lee, who is known for, I'm sure, his subtlety in films like Dragon Squad and uh, Fighters Blues. Um, again, he applies his um, uh, hyperactive directing style here on uh, another period film. Uh, last year he did, last year he did Three Kingdoms. Uh, I think Resurrection of Dragon, which uh, sorry to say I really hated because of his directorial uh, style. Uh, so 14 Blade stars the Donnie. Um, as the best member of this um, group called Jin Yi Wei, which is sort of like the secret police of uh, ancient China. Um, the film takes uh, starts with like two, three minute uh, narration explaining what they do. They go on secret missions for the emperor and things like that. And that's where the title comes from, is that each member, I believe, have 14 different swords, one each sword with different purpose, even though we really can't tell because Donnie just kill, only needs one sword. In fact, he only probably needs half a sword to kill anyone. Um, anyway, so at the beginning of the film, um, Donnie goes on a mission with his uh, fellow Jin Yi Wei uh, members to retrieve uh, an emperor's uh, royal seal. Um, they don't really explain very well what the seal is for or who they're getting it from. But anyway, the mission is botched uh, because of a secret eunuch or uh, um, I'm sorry, because of an evil eunuch played by uh, Lo Ka Ying. Trust me, really, it really is Lo Ka Ying. Um, and um, so the, the, the evil uh, eunuch um, plots with another member of the Jin Yi Wei to take out uh, Donnie's character named Ching Long. And now Ching Long has to go on the run from the law because he's now he now holds the seal and has to uh, go on the run to protect it and everything. Um, 
And along the way, he hires an escort service. An escort means bodyguard, not the other escort service, uh, run by um, Wu Ma and his daughter, Vicky Zhao. Uh, so then they take him on a road trip uh, to God knows where because it never actually explained where they're going. Uh, but now Donnie is on a run with Wu Ma and Vicky Zhao, and they have to protect him until they actually found out who he is. And then... Um, the, the 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 road trip takes them on into a desert town um somewhere in the desert uh we assume it's western china in fact we assume it's actually xinjiang um in the town um they they run into a group of bandits led by wu jun um a taiwanese pop star uh who decides to dress in braids and looking like he's jack sparrow um and and during this this whole thing in the town, um, Wu Jun will will learn to drop his bandit lifestyle and become a hero. Uh, meanwhile, the the evil eunuch has dispatched uh the the daughter of the Western king, played by Samuel Hung, who only shows up in one scene and has no dialogue and really does no fighting. Um, so they so the daughter, his daughter, uh, played by Kate Sway, um. Uh, Goes on the hunt to 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 go after Donnie and and the and the and the uh, Imperial Seal, um, and that's really the gist of the film. Um, the problem is that uh, Fourteen Blades had a really good premise, you know, CIA in ancient China sounds really interesting, but they never really take advantage of it. Within three minutes or so, they already show Donnie on the run. We never show what this these people actually do, uh, why these people are powerful, or why. Donnie, except because he's Donnie, why he's the most powerful member of the group. Um, they do flashback once in a while to the training process. Um, the idea is that they were orphans um, uh, kidnapped by the emperor to and to be trained into these warriors. Um, there's uh, flashbacks to that, but there's really no, no um, proof or no, there's nothing that shows why they kick so much ass. Kind of reminds um, me of Ninja Assassin for some reason. There you go. I mean, Ninja Assassin um, is kind of fun because you see, you see the the idea of the ninjas never escape you. You know, they never escape the film. But the whole thing about the CIA in China thing that goes all out the window within like the first five minutes. After that Bosch mission, you never hear it's Donnie going on the run, and and the 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 organization itself is going through eternal uh, internal chaos because of all the all the plot, all the, all the uh, court intrigue going on. So you never really understand the organization. There's nothing really to explore here, even though there's plenty worth exploring. Hmm. So, so as what, a, what about the action? I mean, is, if the story's narrative's not holding up very well, is the action satisfying? Well, Daniel Lee, he directs the film with a lot of close-ups and a lot of shaky cam and a lot of uh, overactive, um, hyperactive editing. And that, so it made... Yeah, the action not really it made un- underwhelming. I mean, Donnie, of course, is a very good physical actor. Um, and he gets into the bath and you see his muscles and all the tattoos and and um you know, he, he's as good as ever. But the problem is that the final fight is between Donnie and Kate Sue, who is not a martial arts uh actor. So and they end up being relying on a lot of CGI and a lot of wire work, I'm sure some stunt work and you know the climax is kind of anticlimactic, to be honest. Uh, Wu Jun has has sort of worked out a six pack, but uh, and his his fight scene with Donnie is okay as well. But 
yeah, action is is not really as good as it could be. I think. Well, what about Zhao Wei? What how how? Because I think the last thing we saw in was Mulan, which was uh, somewhat of a letdown. Is she redeeming herself here? Um, no. I mean, she's the damsel in distress essentially. There's that's a one huge plot hole. At one point, um, Donnie gives up something to rescue Zhao Wei. Okay, which is a big sacrifice. But then the next scene, he uses Zhao Wei as a bait to get that thing back. And there's just there's so many idiotic script script writing here going on. And you just wonder, you know, the guy who came with the gimmick is probably not the guy who wrote the script. <laughs> you know, you wonder, mm. you're thinking. It's just really a waste of a good good idea, I think. It's totally wasted on Daniel Lee. It's totally wasted. I mean, Donnie would have been great in this film. Donnie's a perfect fit as the kick-ass, you know, secret agent in ancient China. But it's never never put to use. How about Wu Ma's? Is he given any... Uh, does he have any martial arts spots at all? Or is he sort of just as, an, as a supporting character? Actually, he has one fight scene. And uh, one of our friends actually said out loud, yeah, the 103-year-old Wu Ma looks better fighting than K-3. Who is like the ultimate? The I mean, ultimate come on, villain. that's to be expected. He's he's you know, he's a martial artist and has been a fight choreographer and a fight director. So exactly. So the whole thing just is so ill-conceived from the beginning. I mean, instead of having someone that can fight like Samuel, you have Samuel, you have Wu Ma, and they're both wasted here. Instead, you have Kei who has no martial arts experience, who who is best seen as her taking off her clothes. I'm not. I'm not kidding. Take off her clothes one by one as a way of as a martial arts move. I mean that's that's it, it's a really a big waste of of what they have what they could have potentially could have done. They should have let Donnie do that instead. <laughs> oh, Donnie does take off his clothes without asking. Don't worry, he'll, <laughs> he'll take it up plenty of times. <laughs> so yeah, um, Donnie fourteen blades not as fun as a Donnie film could be, and really, um, honestly, it's, it's not a very engaging film either. All right, well, let's move on and talk about our last film uh, for the, this week, at least, for the Chinese New Year season, and that is the martial arts film True Legend. Uh, this is coming from famous international director Yun Wu Ping, who many people in the West will remember as the fight director for the Matrix films, among others. Uh, the film stars Vincent Zhao, uh, Zhou Shun, and with a cameo by Jay Chow, and it basically tells the story uh, somewhat, somewhat classic story of a character who is working as a soldier for the government and he retires and he's not interested in taking up a post as a governor or any of the politics that he's offered after um, being very successful in his position. And the beginning of the film we're seen, we're, we're shown uh, him rescuing uh, a young, I believe it's a young prince or... Um, some a part of the a member of the royal family, and so he's got a lot a lot of accolades coming his way, and he doesn't really want any of it. He just wants to retire and live a simple life uh, with his wife and son, uh, and so he does, and he he goes home and he retires. And this is taking place in it starts off in 1861, and it advances through time there. So it's a very politically active period. Um, you've got. Um, a lot of things going on. You've got the Opium War going on around this time. You've got incursions by uh, the invading colonial powers into China. China's weak, weakening overall. So um, politically, there's there's a lot of changes going on into China. None of that's really the focus here. The focus stays primarily upon the main character and his family. Um, the problem as the story unfolds is that 
his brother, who's played by Andy Ahn, um, is very jealous of him, and he has, um, in fact, married Andy Ahn's sister. His wife is, is Andy Ahn's sister. And it was um, his father who adopted these two after he killed Andy Ahn's father for mastering the, um, what is it, the five deadly venoms fist? Venoms, yeah. Yeah. Um, a very secret art that utilizes kung fu and and poison technique, um, but it was considered to make any practitioners of this art uh, turn turn them slightly insane. So um, Vincent Sao's father basically ended up killing this person and adopting the two kids. And so there's a there's a tale of revenge. Andy Yan's character wants to get revenge um, on the entire family. And he, as he extracts his revenge, um, there's there's a there's a fight scene, and he's poisoned. He has to be treated. He has to relearn his kung fu, and go back and try and rescue his family. And that's basically um, the story uh, in a nutshell. He loses his position, and basically, uh, at a later point in the story, becomes sort of a wandering beggar. Um, primarily, the film it has a number of action scenes. It, it the action's very well done, as you might expect, being a Yun Wu Ping film. It's got a solid story for the first hour and a half. And then, from my perspective, the last half hour descends into a repetitive, sort of nationalistic, um, anti, anti-foreigner sentiment that we've seen played out in other films like Fearless and Ip Man. And if I remember the, the credits correctly, I think Christine To is one of the screenwriters of this film. Is that correct? The only screenwriter. Yeah, so I think, you know, she's borrowing heavily from her work in Fearless to some extent. And in some ways, it's it's almost a direct copy um, that you can see playing out in the last half-hour fight scenes. Um, and you do have a guest appearance by David Carradine uh, in the end of the film, who's playing sort of this ringmaster-type character who's organizing these fights, and he's got a bunch of fighters under him that are going around basically beating up and challenging uh, lots of Chinese martial artists. And it's sad to see him in this role because it's a very cliched role. Um, you know, he it, it, I don't want to give too much away, but basically all the things you would expect to see the foreigner doing in order to win the fight, he sort of pulls out of the bag here. Um, and so it's it's that part of it's very disappointing. If they could have... Ended the film 30 minutes earlier. I think it would have been a, an excellent film. It probably would have been one of, one of my favorite films of the year. But because they sort of take it and they extend and repeat this thing that we've seen done so many times before. Um, and in an effort to simply just stir the nationalism pot that's already brewing in China. And, and probably they think that's going to get more attendance in the audience if they have that message in there. It's just a shame that that they they went that route with the film. Kevin, what do you what do you, what did you think about it? Did you enjoy it or? I'm actually quite angry at what they used this character as. I mean the the story has been told many times, a bigger so, uh, different forms, different stories actually. Um, most I think most famous for Hong Kong cinema is uh, the King of Beggars, where um, Stephen Chow played an aspiring scholar who is thrown out to the street after being accused of cheating. And then becomes the bigger and learns and becomes the leader of the bigger gang. I mean, that's very much a traditional sort of martial arts story. Um, 
but here it just being it takes this legendary character and be, it becomes a tool for nationalism. It's it's quite ugly what they do here. Um, like you said, I quite enjoyed the the first two thirds. Uh, I wouldn't say it's very good. Um, at points it's a little slow. Um, and um, it's okay. Um, the action of course is very good. Um, and the idea of how the drunken fist becomes developed is quite good as well. But uh, yeah, the last one third of it really as as hong kong love hong kong film would say it all goes to hell yeah what did you think about jay chow uh jay chow was hilarious <laughs> jay chow shows up uh can i ruin it i mean he he's the shows as a king well of, he shows up, um, yeah he's jay chow and gordon liu um yeah she, uh, show gordon up as Lil, characters uh, who basically are, are there to train um master so at, at, a, at a given point and sort of Help him with his training. Uh, Essentially, and... the biggest Deus Ex Machina you could you could take out of a martial arts film. You bring out the God of Wushu. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's how everybody well, what saw. That, what did that make Gordon Liu's character? He was like the God of of wine or the God of drinking or something. I think he's the brains of the operation. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing he's the one that sends back and just I think he telepathically controls Jay Chow. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, Jay Chow shows up white hair, kind of looking like Nicholas Say in The Promise, and and does a lot of kung fu in 3D, by the way, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, you know, his his scenes are fun, and um, and I think actually that's the, that's the thing about this film is that it lacks fun. The whole thing is really serious. Um, and I'm not sure if that's Christine Toast writing or Yuan Wu Ping having a lot of respect for the character, or they want this film to be respected, or something like that. They're trying to create this. Legend, like it's like the title says, true legend is that you can't have any humor in it, I guess. And it's a really straightforward, kind of really serious take on the tale. Even though you see things like a villain who has to who who has to train by having scorpions sting him every day, and and um, you know the old old the classic style, you know zoom zoom into a character shot that you see in a lot of Shaw Brothers movie. That kind of these kind of old techniques that make it fun on a different level but the film itself is never fun it's very serious yeah but i i don't know if it i don't i wasn't really looking for it to be fun i think for me i was really looking to see how was when you know was the action satisfying um was the was the fight choreography using too much cgi in places and and for the most part i found all of that satisfying up to a point and then it sort of just suddenly jumped into this this other story path and said, you know, it seems like at a certain point the film is supposed to end, but then it right. doesn't end and it goes further in, in into this, you know, into this almost like a separate story, a continuation of this, what you know, what this character is going to do. Well, even has his own title screen. This yeah. New and and yeah. it's, it's just very reminiscent. You know, when you look at, look at how, um, if you've seen fearless, fearless ends and there's like this narration about how the character went on to set up this martial arts club and how that's gone on to spread to different branches throughout Asia and blah, blah, blah. And then you see the same kind of, you get the same kind of thing from um, Ip Man in the ending where, you know, this character went on to train Bruce Lee who ended up going on to train, you know, all these different, different people and open up these different schools. And it's the same thing here, only it's a little bit pushed. If you, if you study, if you study, kung fu or martial arts lineages and things like that there's no real schools dedicated to drunken fist mm -hmm. um it's 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 
it's kind of fudged a little bit in the way that they're portraying it. And it's just copying these same formats that Fearless went through, you know, with, um, or that Ipmon went through with sort of their, the way they wrapped things up in their narrative. Um, but I, I think for that first part, I mean, the, the, the rivalry between the characters I felt was interesting. Um, I think that Andy on who, you know, typically he can, he either underacts or he overacts in roles that he's given. I thought, I thought he came off pretty well as, you know, as the villain and I, the act, the action was handled well, the 3d, uh, I, you know, it, okay. Yeah. We've got the first 3d sort of Kung Fu film. It was kind of tacked on. Mm-hmm. I felt, um, not really necessary. Basically, there are two extended sequences when you have to put on 3D glasses of about 10 to 15 minutes each. And there's a big annoying symbol that comes that came up on the screen. And I remember at the start of the film, they said, when you see this symbol, and it says basically 3D or 3D with an X through it to, as a signal to take off the glasses. So when you see this symbol, put on your please put on your glasses. And I was just thinking to myself, I don't know if it was you or whoever was sitting next to me, I said, I hope it's not that big, you know, that the symbol that they're going to show us is not actually that big. And it was. It was this huge block symbol up in the corner that they left sitting there for like two or three minutes of the film before, you know, the 3D actually started up. Mm-hmm. And then the 3D was only in segments. It would like you, it, it was basically two fight scenes um, that the 3D was happening. And those fight scenes kept being intercut by other scenes that were going on elsewhere, which were not in 3D. So it was like even the whole 10-minute sequence when you're supposed to be wearing the 3D glasses, you could just take them off because not all of that was being done in 3D. So I think it was just, it it was a good idea, but it wasn't executed very well. I I could have done without it. Um, I think for the fight scenes, it didn't, it, it doesn't lend itself well in some of the scenes because you can actually see because of the 3D effect, you can see that the, you know, the choreography is such that they're missing each other. You can see that the blows are like not really connecting. And, you know, that's if you if you look at fight choreography, the way they actually do it technically, um, a lot of fight choreography is, is near misses. But the way the depth of field works with the cameras, it looks like there's a connection going on based on an actor's reaction. And the 3D was kind of throwing that off here in a couple places. So. I mean, that's just a technical qualm. I think that the basic sense I got from people in the audience is they were sort of enjoying the experience. Um, but having to take put on glasses and take them off at certain points and the big logo on the screen, for me personally, I just found it annoying and, and unnecessary. I think I would have fully enjoyed the film had it been a straight 2D film all the way. Yeah, I don't think the 3D was necessary for the enjoyment. I think a martial arts film really needs 3D. I mean, it's not like I want... An entire guy jumping at me on the screen and making it more enjoyable. And the way that the 3D here is that they took the foreground out and put it in the front, which looks really flat when you do a 3D. And then they just they just did the depth of field, they just added a depth of field to the back. Yeah. So sometimes you get these really disproportionate images where you know something really appears really small in front of you and the big background is really big, or you see like they never really land on where it's supposed to land. It just seems really forced. It was definitely really distracting to watch. 
um I didn't I didn't think about the near misses that you were talking about. Yeah, it definitely but you're right. There are definitely plays where it seems like the punches don't connect and uh backgrounds don't connect to the front. And and like I said, the front the all the figures in the front of the screen look really flat and actually that took away from the dimensionality of the whole of the visuals. But then uh it looked like the entire film was meant to be in 3D, look at some of the composition where where um there are knives flying at the screen or uh, snow. Yeah, in yeah, I front noticed that the there screen, were a couple like there that. were a couple shots um like in the in that big opening sequence, the rescue sequence, when you know the way that it's filmed, you're thinking, yeah, they they it looked like they meant this part to be in 3D, but then it wasn't. So yeah, yeah it was it was kind of strange, and and a couple of the fight sequences um in terms of CGI. I think that there was a bit of little bit of overuse of CGI. Um, there's a there's a fight sequence that really kind of a fight slash training sequence that takes place on this big Buddha statue that was very reminiscent for me of um, Storm Riders. Um, mm-hmm. Very, if you remember back to Storm Riders, very early on, um, I think it's um, Wind's father. And yes. Sonny Chiba fight Chiba. on top of the big Buddha. And, and, you know, back then the CGI graphics were not all that great. And I'm looking at this and going, it's not much better. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and I was thinking they could have kind of, they, they, they could have done better if they'd not done sort of this CGI Buddha, if they'd just done it like in a normal studio set or something. Because I think the action that they were portraying was fine, but it's like they're flying out and landing on the arm or landing on this you know, extended blade or something. And it just, it, it didn't really feel right to me for some reason. It looked, it was just like an overusage in some places, but the the overall fight scene that they were portraying, I thought was, was good. Well, that's going to uh, wrap up our reviews for this week for the Chinese New Year special. Um, Kevin, what would be your final verdict of the four films in terms of see, must see, wait for video, or just avoid altogether? Um, avoid 14 Blades for me. Um, I believe for Hong Kong film fans, uh, watch House, uh, 72 Tenets of Prosperity. For sure, it's very, very fun and return to the old style of Lunar New Year comedy. Uh, for non-Hong Kong film fans, or for just people who just want to find a good film to watch during the New Year, I say True Legend would be the pick. But leave after an hour and twenty minutes. Don't watch the last thirty minutes, thirty-five minutes, and then it'll be really, really good. And that would be my verdict. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I'd, I think I'd agree with you. Although I had, like I said, I can't really comment on Fourteen Blades as not having seen it yet. Um, I would say that All's Well, Ends Well 2 is a fun film, uh, fairly accessible to people outside of Hong Kong if you get a chance to see it. 72 Tenants, a little bit less accessible, um, but still fun. If you if you know a little bit about Hong Kong cinema, if you recognize some of the bigger stars like Eric Tsang, Steffi, or Jackie Chung, you'd, you'd probably still find it entertaining. Um, and True Legend, I think, is very accessible. I think that if you like martial arts films at all, you'll like this film. 
Um, it did remind me very much of older sort of Hong Kong style films, even though um, this film is, you know, the, the dialogue is all done in, in Mandarin and Putonghua. I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, it, the, the level of production for that film was good. Uh, like I said, I think they, they were overusing some things I could have done without the 3D and some of the CGI. But the, if this was the quality of film that we were getting more often throughout the year, um, I, I'd be much a much happier cinema goer uh, than I have been in recent years. So I'd say three pretty good films uh, overall, and at least, you know, according to Kevin, one not so good film uh, that you can look forward to either Hope, you know, if you're in a place that still shows Asian films abroad, uh, in a cinema coming to you soon, or to be on video shortly. Um, I've been quite surprised with the number of video releases coming out. We've gotten uh, Storm Warriors last week, and also um, uh, Bodyguards and Assassins, I think, was released, wasn't it? That's right. So, yeah, they've been really pumping out uh, some of the Christmas films. Uh, that were just recently out so hopefully it won't be too much longer and some of these will be out on video so if you don't have access to see these in the cinema you should be able to see them on video um, in the very near future so next week we should be coming back when talking about um what's what's the hot summer days i think yes hot summer days we'll talk about and... hot summer days uh the, the latest hong kong film to come out and we'll be talking about some of the western films that debuted in hong kong for chinese new year including percy jackson and the lightning thief um we'll talk a little bit about princess and the frog um anything else you think can think of we might talk about next week kevin um are you gonna watch the wolfman i i am i'm i'm not sure i've not heard very good things about it um, well, I've seen uh, Valentine's Day, so I guess we could... Yeah, we, we can, we'll talk about Valentine's Day. So we'll have quite a bit to talk about next week as we sort of get caught up on things. And so you can look forward to that show uh, in just about a week from now. Kevin, any final thoughts or anything you'd like to close off with for Chinese New Year? Um, hope everyone gets a good got a good break uh, for Americans, President's Day weekend uh, for you. Asians and Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, a good New Year's holiday. And uh, yeah, let's hope that the year of the tiger will turn out to be good for everyone. Yeah. So with that, we will wish you good viewing and we will see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Oh, but the CGI in Confucius made this look like Transformers. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No comparison. So, yeah. Paul, how can you miss the Donnie? Yeah, I know. It's, it's the Donnie. It's kind of sacrilegious, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it's blasphemy. It you're part it's... of the cult of the Don, it's, uh, yeah. The Don cult, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, Donnie will come to your house and expect you to pay yeah, for a free ticket. I, I must atone. I'll use I'll use his hair care product for the next three months. <laughs> All right.